0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek today on this wonderful sunshiny morning. You know, I think we noticed today that we have finally got back into the pattern of 2018, because it really feels like about two-thirds of the Sundays that we've had in 2018. It's been raining uh but the lord knows what we need and so there's no need in us complaining about it he knows exactly what we need and he knew we needed the rain this morning so we're grateful for it we're thankful for it and we praise him for him giving to us exactly that which we need uh while we were singing i got an update that i want to share with you and that is on ray williams just because ted mentioned it earlier he did come through his surgery in 45 minutes it was nowhere near as bad as they thought that it was he still has a long recovery time praise the lord He still has a a, a long recovery time in front of him. He's not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but we are so thankful and grateful to God that circumstances were not worse than what we had originally and what they had originally thought. And so I know that those of his family and those of all of us who are his church family here are very grateful for that good news, so we want to thank the Lord for that. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, if you're here with us and maybe this is your first time or you've just kind of come into this uh, service today not knowing what to expect, you, you should know that we as a church family have been on a journey through the gospel of Mark. Some might say a long journey. Uh, we, we started this journey back in January of last year and, and over the course of these months we have worked our way through every verse and every paragraph of Mark's gospel thus far and the Lord willing and, and, and he doesn't take me home or Take you away. We're going to continue to keep going right through here until and, and we get to the end of, of Mark's gospel. And, and what's interesting is that today, unplanned by me, but we find ourselves here on April the 15th, which is a date in our vernacular in, in, in America that typically draws to, for many, it causes sweat to pop out on our foreheads and maybe our heart to race a little faster and creates a little anxiety with us because we know that 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 is the date that the government has set aside for us to have our taxes filed. Now, I understand they gave us a couple extra days this year, but April 15th is still just one of those days it tends to to draw out that sort of thought process. And and unplanned by me, but in God's providence, we find ourselves dealing with a text this morning that deals specifically with that issue of paying taxes. So we're going to look at that this morning by God's providence. But before we jump into the text, I want to share with you that in my study in my preparation for this sermon this morning, I came across a, a three-word three phrase that, that just kind of struck me. And it was really simple. It says, Jesus unites people. And when I first saw that, I thought, well, I don't know if I agree with that or not. I and mean, after all, in, in Luke chapter 12, at the end of that chapter, in verses 51 and following, Jesus says, do you suppose that I came to to bring peace on earth? No, he says, I tell you, I did not come to bring peace, but rather division. And then he goes on to say, I've come to divide father against son and daughter against mother and so forth and so on. And so when I first thought, I thought, does Jesus really bring, does he really unite people together? It sounds more like he divides people. But then as I got to thinking about it a little bit more, I, I pondered the issue and I realized that what the author said was actually true. You see, when it comes to Jesus, people are united into one of two groups. They are united into those who trust Him and entrust their lives to Him. And then there is the other group of those who oppose Jesus, either through tacitly just refusing to acknowledge His Lordship or through, uh, uh, through open rebellion to His Lordship. In other words, Jesus causes people who who otherwise would have nothing in common with one another to unite themselves together either for him or against him. We see that actually take place in the disciples that Jesus called to himself. You remember one of them was named Simon the Zealot. And by his very name, what we recognize is that Simon was one who was zealous for the people and, and he really for, of, of Israel, but he, he hated the Roman government. He hated their rule over, over Israel, and he was desirous to be freed from their rule. He hated the fact that the Roman government taxed the Israelites. But among that same group of 12 disciples was also a man named Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, who had, who had earned his living by being a collector of taxes for that same Roman government. Now you want to talk about two individuals who probably under any circumstances wouldn't have been able to stand the sight of one another and yet Jesus calls them together unites them under his lordship as to being part of his disciple band. You have the opposite of that which is also true. There are those who have little or nothing in common with one another who nevertheless find themselves united together in the opposition of Jesus. Take, for example, the Pharisees and the Herodians. We've already learned about them earlier, back in in, in earlier chapters of Mark, but Kent Hughes writes this about those two groups. He says they were really polar opposites of one another. The Pharisees were were nationalistic and longed for the messianic kingdom and the overthrow of the Romans, he writes. The Herodians, on the other hand, had sold themselves out to the Romans and served as their well-cared-for stooges. He says the Pharisees represented conservative Judaism as the Herodians were liberal and syncretistic in their convictions. The Pharisees were the so-called right-wingers and the Herodians were the so-called left-wingers. And what we can recognize is is that it would be hard to imagine a Pharisee and a Herodian ever coming together for a common cause. But as the old saying goes, politics makes for strange bedfellows. What we have already come to know in our study of Mark's gospel, what we're going to see again this morning is that because both of these groups were threatened by Jesus, by His, by His power, by His popularity, and by His teaching, they actually joined forces together to scheme and to plot against Him. So we actually can truly say, Jesus truly does unite people. And it is the united front against Jesus that leads to the conspiracy against Him and really forms the crux of our text this morning. And what we will see is that the way that Jesus responds to their conspiracy toward Him actually communicates something incredibly important for us regarding where our allegiances ought to rightly be. And so that's what I want us to spend our time doing this morning. Let's read there Mark chapter 12 beginning in verse 13. Hear the Word of God this morning. Then they, that is the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and we care about and you care about no one. In other words, you're not not partial, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to open it up. We pray just along the same lines as what we have just sung. We pray that you would speak, O Lord, to us through your word. Use me as your mouthpiece this morning. Allow my words not to interfere with what you would have to be said today. And then you would plant your word deep within us. Let your seed grow within us that it may produce the right fruit. We thank you for the good news that we've received about Ray this morning and the, the success of the surgery. We do continue to pray for his, his progress and his healing, particularly today. Be with Donna, be with his sons, be with their entire family. Comfort them in his recovery time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you notice in your outline this morning, I've included in your bulletin, it's a very simple one uh, with just some few points that I hope will help us kind of walk through the passage uh, as Mark has revealed it to us so that we can see what is actually happening in this text. And then I want us to focus on Jesus's response and how that response is to uh, form the way that we need to live in our world today, in our own context. So let's begin by looking at verse 13, and I want you to notice the first point on your outline today, and it's simply this. It is the plot. Mark reveals to us the plot. We've already talked about how in their hatred and their desire to be rid of him, that the Sanhedrin had employed the, the use of, of these both the Pharisees and the Herodians to come at Jesus. And, and, and these are groups, as we said, who would not normally work together, but no doubt they were skilled at argumentation. They were skilled at debating. And so Mark says that, that, that Sanhedrin put them together because they had one common desire, and that was they wanted to catch Jesus. They wanted to trap him in his words. The word that is used there is a word that often refers to catching an animal. It's the same word that in the scriptures is used for catching a fish. And and so as we'll see, to snare something, to ensnare Jesus was their goal. And and the process of doing that implies treachery and deceit. That, of course, then leads us to the next point that I have listed for you on your outline. According to what we read in verse 14, we read that we not only see the plot, but now we see the flattery. The flattery that was used. I I read something interesting. Flattery has been described as just the opposite of gossip. Gossip is something that you say behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face. Flattery, Flattery is something that you would say to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. And that's exactly what these guys are engaged in. They're engaged in flattery. They're saying some things about Jesus that they would never have said about him behind his back. And what I want you to notice is that that's exactly what happens. And thinking about flattery, I'm always thinking about the lures that you use if you go fishing. I've I've gone fishing with some people in this room and they would tell you I'm not a fisherman and that's true. But uh, I would probably be the fish that would get caught first in the lake because I'm really, I'm attracted to shiny things, especially things that, like move and, and do stuff. So if you're out there and, you, and you're shiny and you move, trust me, I'm going to be looking at you and seeing what's going on. I, I'd be like that. And so even when I go like the Bass Pro Shop or something, I, I look at the lures, I don't know what in the world they're supposed to catch, but they're amazing to me. But you know what? They look beautiful, but those lures have hooks in them, designed to catch the fish. I think about people who do who, who trap animals and, and, and those who, who trap pests or even live animals for whatever reason that they need to rehome them or whatever. Lots of times they, they put a box trap out and they'll, they'll put really tasty things. Uh, if you ever want to catch a possum, little Debbie's, just so you know. Don't ask me how I know, but little Debbie's will do it. But you have these, these things and these traps and, and they, they look good, they smell good, they taste good. And the animal begins to smell it and to go in there and bam, door slammed shut. That's what this flattery was designed to do to Jesus. They, they hoped what it would do was to put him off and, and to, 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 to ease his, his, his attention so that they could trap him in his words. But but notice notice what they say. They say teacher. They call him teacher. And they say, We know that you are true. Oh, it sounds great, doesn't it? And that and that you care about no one. That's not a negative statement the way that it might seem, and according to the New King James. What it really means is that you're not affected by people and their position. You you are one who 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 stands behind truth and truth is what drives you. And then they go on to say, you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Man, doesn't that sound wonderful? Their words are just like honey dripping off their lips. And I want you to know, everything they said about Jesus was 100% correct. Everything they said about Him was true. There's never been a greater teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. There's never been anyone who did not show favoritism or deference to the status and position of others the way that Jesus did. There's never been someone who walked with not one ounce of falseness in them, but was completely only given to the truth. There's never been anyone who pointed others to the way of God and integrity and truthfulness more or better than Jesus Christ did. Everything these men said about Him was true, but it was flattery because they would have never said it about Him behind His back. In fact, they hated Jesus. All you have to do is look back one verse, back to chapter, verse 12 of Mark 12 to see just how bad the Sanhedrin and all of those who were associated with them hated him. They said they sought to lay hands on him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to be done with him. In fact, we can also say this too. We know that they didn't believe what they said because had they truly believed that Jesus was everything that they claimed him to be, they would have been one of his followers. They would have been one of his disciples, not one of his attackers. Consequently, we understand that their flattery was insincere and therefore it was hypocritical. Jesus saw right through it. Mark makes that clear in verse 15. He saw their hypocrisy. He knew they were only putting on a front. He knew they were only putting on a show. They were only trying to appear righteous when on the inside they were corrupt and full of hatred toward him. And I don't want you to know that's an important point that we must not drive by too fast and miss. Because what it tells us is that Jesus, Jesus is never fooled by our false worship. Jesus is never taken in by us and our flattery of him. We can pray all the fanciful prayers that we want to. We can, we can engage in acts of religiosity and, and we can... Sing all the right songs. But if those outward expressions are not matched up with a heart that is full of humility and love toward him, he will see right through it just as he did here. So we recognize the plot and we've heard the flattery. Now let's move on to the third point on your outline this morning. And it's the question. The question, notice that this delegation of men asked the Lord Jesus. They thought that they put him, you know, they've caught him unawares that he's, he's at a vulnerable moment. And so they asked this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Shall we pay or shall we not? And I can just engage in a little bit of a holy imagination here for them to just see. Can't you just see the smiles and nods? We got him. We got you, Jesus. We've set you up, pal. We've got you here. We have asked a question that you are going... You, either way you answer it, we've got you. That's, that's what they thought. You see, the, the, the question was designed to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, we might say. It was designed to leave him no room to waffle one way or the other. He either had to say, yes, pay the tax or no, don't pay the tax. If he said, yes, pay the tax, think about what that would do. That would have been rubbing the Jews' nose in the face, rubbing their nose in the fact that they were subject to the Roman government. These very ones who had... Thronged around him and followed him, the very ones who had lined the roads and had yelled at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who was who were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman rule. If he says yes, pay the tax, what do you think happens to his popularity? They go away. They, they see him as a weakling, they see him as a traitor, they see him as somebody that they no longer want to follow. And so if he answers yes, pay the tax. Man, these, these Herodians and these Pharisees, they've done their job. On the other hand, if, if they answer the question, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, what do they do? They immediately go to the Roman guard that's stationed right there in the temple and say, you've got a guy over here who says that the Jewish people are, are not liable to have to pay their taxes. And immediately, Jesus would have been arrested and perhaps even killed on the spot. Either way, they've got him. They really felt like they had checkmated Jesus. And to show you just how fiery this question actually was, just remember, of his own twelve, he's got Simon the zealot, who, who was zealous for the Israelites, and he was the very one who there had been at least two uprisings by the time that Jesus, at this point, and and since Jesus had been alive, two uprisings among the Jews who had fought against the Romans' taxation of them. Simon the Zealot was likely a part of that. And then you've also got Levi, the former tax collector. Be assured that both of those guys have got their eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, want to know, how's he going to answer the question? What side is he going to fall on? And everybody else is listening intently to what he's going to say. So what does Jesus say? Well, that's the fourth thing. fourth point on your outline this morning is the answer. Notice that Jesus responds to the question the way he always typically responds. Not always, but a lot of times. He, he follows the question with a question of his own. But it's a question designed to let them know who was actually in charge. You see, they thought they checkmated Jesus. They thought they were the ones in charge, the Herodians and the Pharisees. But when Jesus asked this question, he says, why do you test me? He's letting them know right up front, look, I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. I mean, if they thought they'd cornered Jesus and caught him unexpectedly, they were not as smart as they think they were. He tells them, bring me a denarius that I may see it. Someone produces the coin, brings it to Jesus, and he says, whose image and whose inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And in Jesus' day, the, the, the image on that coin was likely that of Tiberius Caesar. And on that, that denarius coin was also inscribed this. It says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, himself Augustus. That was right there on the front of the coin. And then if you flip the coin over on the back side, you would see these words, Pontifex Maximus, which translated literally means high priest. That was the coin. Somebody in that group had one of them, and they brought it to Jesus. Now, don't miss the irony of that. You see, as Mark Strauss points out, while seeking to trap Jesus into saying something either seditious against the Roman government or blasphemous against God, those among this delegation sent by the Sanhedrin were carrying coins with idolatrous images and messages in their own pockets. And the irony continues because that denarius coin that bore the image of Caesar and touted him as the son of the divine high priest was carried in the pockets of the very same men who were trying to trap Jesus, the one and only true divine son of God and the one and only true high priest. Now, what that reminds us of is just simply this. Hatred and hypocrisy can unite people but it ultimately will blind them to the truth. Brothers and sisters, we must be so careful in our lives that we do not unite ourselves in hypocrisy and in hatred because whenever we do, it blinds us to the truth of who God is and what he desires to do in our lives. So this denarius was brought to Jesus, and there again, engaging in a little holy imagination, I can just see him taking it and just flipping it up, watching it flip through the air. And the image of Tiberius Caesar being visible and then invisible and invisible and then invisible and then, invisible and then, invisible and then it hits the ground. And it makes that ting sound and then it begins to roll and you can hear it rolling as it finally comes to the end and lays there. And with that image, Jesus looks at it and he looks at the crowd and he says, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. What a profound and yet very enigmatic statement that Jesus makes. It's simple and straightforward, and yet it opens the mind to the reality of the fact that that there are two different realms of authority one that is earthly and one that is spiritual. And what Jesus says here is that showing allegiance to one does not necessarily mean disloyalty to the other. You see, when the question was asked of Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay the tax or not? The question was set up as if he could only answer in one of two ways, either yes or no. It was an either or question. In other words, according to the flawed reasoning of these Pharisees and Herodians, Jesus could only answer in these two ways, but he amazed them by actually answering in a third and heretofore unforeseen way. You see, what could actually be refuted was, what could not be refuted was that particularly in ancient times, whatever image was on that coin, that was really who the coin belonged to. Think about it this way. If you and I travel overseas, we go to a foreign country, we exchange our U.S. dollars, for that foreign currency, because in many places they do not take U.S. money where they are. So if we want to buy things on the local market, we need their currency. The same is also true whenever we come back to the States. If we come back with our pockets full of money that we've gotten in a foreign country and we try to go to here to the, to the, to the market to pay for something, what are they going to say? We don't take that coin. We don't take that money. Why? Because it belongs to another country. It was was produced by another country, it was backed by another country, and it has no value here. And so what Jesus is saying simply is this. Look at the coin and see whose image is on it. It's ultimately Caesar's coin because his face is there. So give it to him. Then he follows that up with this astonishing statement that didn't go unnoticed, and he says, but give to God the things... That are God's. In other words, consider what he says here. All of you that are standing there trying to trap me by by asking a question about a tax paid to the Roman government using Roman coinage that bears the image of the emperor of Rome on it need to be reminded that you as an individual have an even greater image stamped upon you because you have been stamped with the image of God. You see, in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, in verse 27, we read these words that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Therefore, the logic that Jesus used with regard to the Roman denarius is now applied to the human heart. You see, just as Caesar had the right to demand what was his, God has the right to demand what is his. In other words, every human being has an obligation to give God their worship, to give God their their obedience and their praise and their love and their gratitude. You and I owe that to him because of who he is and because of what he has given to us. He has given us our life. He has given us our existence. He has given us our very breath. He's given us our families. And consequently, what we need to come to understand is by virtue of the fact that we bear His image, God owns us. And He has the right to demand that we yield ourselves to His will for our lives. And friend, that's true. That's true for you even if you're not saved. Even if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that you bear the image of God by creation. According to creation, He has created you in His image. So that image you bear is a symbol of divine ownership, and as a result, God has the right to tell you how to live. God has the right to tell you how to believe. God has the right to demand your obedience. He has the right to demand that you receive His Son as your Savior. And if you have, If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know His ownership of you is even doubly true. He not only owns you by act of creation, He owns you by act of His salvation and redemption. See, just as the Scriptures teach, you have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus. So Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. In, in other words, give him the coins that bear his image, but render to God the things that are God's. Give him your lives, because on, his, on your life is the image of God. And what we also ought to know then is that he says, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar and unto God that which is God's. He didn't say but. That's important. I'm kind of a a nerd for language sometimes. He didn't say render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render to God that which is God. That would have set it up as if it was in contrast to one another, right? That's not how he answered the question. He said, give, give Caesar what's his and give God that which is God's. Now, if we think about this, if we think about the fact that God owns everything, if, he, if he's the ruler of everything and he owns everything, then we can begin to understand that, that doesn't, if we render under Caesar that which is his, that doesn't mean that we're at, at, at odds with God. Because God owns it all. He even owns what Caesar owns. Have you ever thought about that? God, who is the great God of heaven, who owns everything from every place, even owns that which Caesar owns. We might even put it this way. John the Revelator did in Revelation 11, verse 15. Caesar's empire ultimately begon- belongs to God. You want to know why? Because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. As the Dutch preacher and politician Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So, we've identified the plot that was hatched against Jesus. We've listened to the hypocritical flattery that was laid upon Him by His enemies. We've heard... The question that was supposed to have trapped him, and we've seen how masterfully he answered that question. that leads then to the last point that I want us to ponder in just a brief few moments and before we close the day, and the fifth point in mean, your outline is this: It's the implication the implication. What, what difference does this all make to us? How does it apply to those of us living in the 21st century as opposed to those living in the first world? Well, let me state unequivocally up front, it, it directly applies to us. It is just as true for us today as it was. True in the first century when Jesus uttered these words and so therefore we need to consider just for a brief moment what does it mean when we ask what belongs to Caesar what, what is it that belongs to Caesar and I think that it's obvious from the context of this passage that by his statement Jesus is acknowledging the divine authority of human government over us And therefore as citizens Jesus makes it clear that we have a responsibility to pay our taxes we are not to evade We are not to skirt our obligations to those who have been set up as our governing authorities. As the Apostle Paul would take what Jesus said here and expand upon it in Romans chapter 13, he says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, Paul writes, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on down in verse 6 of Romans 13 and says this, For because of this you also pay taxes. For they, that is the governing authorities, are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, listen, paying our taxes doesn't mean that we have to agree with how our tax money is spent. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with the way the tax code is enforced and with the amount that we are required to pay. it doesn't mean that we can't petition our government to understand and have them have an accountability to us. Especially as citizens here in the United States, we have, with the, with the responsibility to pay taxes, we are given the right to be able to hold those who are, who are there for spending that into accountability. Nevertheless, it does not give us the option of not subjecting ourselves to the authority of the government that God has appointed over us. But let me also hasten to add that what Jesus says here does not mean that we as citizens are to do anything or be compelled by our government to do anything that is immoral or that conflicts with what God reveals in His Scripture. In the book of Acts, we have a perfect example of that. Peter and John are told by the Sanhedrin, the governing authorities there, that they are not to speak in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Listen, Caesar may own the coin, but he does not on the person. So Caesar gets what belongs to him. And listen, we could talk a lot about this. We could talk about what it means with regard to military service and what it means to public service and what it means to show prayer to those who are having, offering prayer for those who, are, who are, are serving in those places. We could talk about that, but as we come to close, just think about this for just for a moment. What does it mean? What, what does God, what do we owe God? What belongs to God? In the grandest sense, we can say that God owns everything, for from Him and for Him and through Him are all things. But let's move from the expansive down to the personal. What does it mean for you that you are to render to God that which is God's? How does that apply to you and to me? Well, the first thing that I think it means is that He owns our bodies. You realize He owns your eyes and your ears and your hands and your feet? And because He owns your bodies, He desires for you to to give your will to His will. What that means is a very simple thing. You are to go where He commands you to go and you're to do what He commands you to do. The opposite is also true. Because we owe Him, we don't go where He tells us not to go and we don't do the things that He tells us not to do. Our will is submitted to His will. Not only that, but God owns our possessions. He owns our bank accounts. He owns our homes. He owns everything that we have. It ultimately belongs to Him. As one writer has put it, what that means is is that our houses ought to be places of rest for us, but it also ought to be a place where we practice hospitality for people in need. He then goes on to say our possessions, our money must be held loosely, listen, until we have the next golden opportunity to invest it in the kingdom of God. I love the way he puts that. Not only that, but our time belongs to God. Our days, our weeks, our months, our years, all of it belongs to God. And as we have already known, some of that is the most precious resource that any of us have is time. Therefore, we must not waste it in the pursuit of trivial things. We must commit our time to Him and to His service. You may be here and you're struggling with some of the things I'm saying. You're thinking, what right does God have to be able to claim all of that from my life? It may seem a little much for the Lord to make such a wide sweeping demand about what we are to give to God. You may be struggling with God's right to claim all of that. But if you are, let me remind you that everything you have ultimately came from him to begin with. And if you are questioning his intent or how good he is, let me also remind you of this. That the same God who demands that we give everything to him has already given everything to us. He sent his son Jesus, the Lord, to die on the criminal's death in our place so that we, by faith in Jesus, might have eternal life. As I mentioned earlier, Paul says, we have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, as it pertains to our allegiance and to the issue of to whom it belongs, I offer you my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Allegiance to God's sovereign rule requires rendering all that is due to the earthly authorities he has established and surrendering everything to him in whose image we were made, the one who offers us salvation and eternal life through his son. One put it this way, taxes belong to Caesar, hearts and souls belong to God. As such, God can demand of us things that Caesar could never rightfully he made that statement and then Mark tells us there at the end, they marveled at him. Just a few words, they marveled at him. This was the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees. These were the trained arguers. These were the debaters. Their mouths were shut and they marveled at him. I wonder today, do you marvel at Jesus? Are you amazed by him? I hope you are. But I want you to know it's not enough. It's not enough to simply marvel at the Son of God. It's not enough to be just amazed by Him. You see, because of who He is, because of what He's done, He demands that you humble yourself before Him. He demands that you repent of your sin. He demands that you come to Him on His terms. And friend, when you do, He opens up a hall you, not because of how good you are, but because of how good he is. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. This is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.